Welcome to another episode of Becoming Referrable, the podcast that helps you be the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Julie Littlechild, and on this week's show, Steve and I have a great conversation with Dave Patchen. Dave is the Senior Vice President of Education and Practice Management with Raymond James. Now, he began his career as a warehouse advisor before moving on to become an independent contractor. From there, he joined Raymond James as a recruiter before making the move into regional management and then taking on his current role. Now, his resume doesn't exactly say this, but I can tell you that Dave is a big thinker, and that's why we were so excited to speak with him. It's not only that he understands the advisory business inside and out, he does, but he has a unique understanding and perspective on what gets in the way of success and and what propels us forward. We also talk about the challenge that clients have in understanding their own needs and the challenge and opportunity that represents for advisors. And with that, let's get straight to the conversation. So Dave, welcome to the show today. Welcome, Dave. Thanks, folks. How are you today? Awesome. Great. Really looking forward to talking to you, actually. And, and, you know, Dave, one of the things that I'm so interested um, about this conversation is I feel like you bring this incredibly unique perspective because you have worked with so many advisors over the years, but you've gone deep in in understanding their businesses. You've built programs. You've managed, you know, big groups of, of people in, in your role. So I think you just bring this incredibly unique perspective to, to the conversation. And, and maybe because of that, I'd love it if we could just start at a fairly high level and just ask you, you know, today as you're out there talking to advisors, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges and opportunities that they're facing. Well, thanks, Julie, for uh, teeing that up. And my background is unique in that I've got to work with advisors uh, in so many different levels, in so many different roles, both supervision, uh, sales management, coaching, still do a lot of one-on-one coaching work. And the biggest challenge that I see them having today is maintaining high levels of connection with clients. And, you know, connections becoming somewhat of a new age term. Um, demographically, I would say older client, older advisors probably uh, look at it differently than some of the millennials that we're training right now. But connection means really understanding at a deep level and empathizing with prospects and clients. And understanding what they're going through, understanding what they're experiencing. And I don't see advisors doing this as well as I think they could or as well as I think they should. So that's a, I mean, it's a really interesting observation because I would imagine that most advisors who get into this business to help people would see that as one of their strengths. Do you, do you see that um, disconnect? Uh Agreed. I do. Here's the thing. I think they see it in the context of earning business initially. I think there's some context of it from a client retention standpoint, but there's this thing that we've discussed a little bit uh, in the past. I call it immersion bias. And because advisors do what they do and play in their space their entire career, 
they lose sight of the fact that the average client doesn't understand what's going on. And there's some macro forces that are driving this. There's technological forces. There's pace of change. There's information overload. There's geopolitical events. Um, there's regulation overload. And since we're dealing with this stuff every day, we, it, it, this is actually a compliment to advisors. Advisors don't feel like they're smarter than everyone else. They do feel like they're connected. So they feel like if I'm aware of all this stuff and I'm sensing and feeling and working and navigating through this, my clients probably are dealing with the same thing. And although they're experiencing all of these stimuli, they're not dealing with it at the same level that an advisor is. And that's where the disconnect comes from. So, so Dave, let, let, I just want to clarify something. You know, the, the way that I believe I would put what you're saying is that one of the challenges that advisors have is demonstrating their value when the client's not sitting right in front of them. Is that what you're talking about or you're talking about something different? Well, that yes, that, I am talking about that. This whole value, I call it a value gap, and that's the perceived gap between what the advisor think the client knows about them and values from the offering. And if you ask the client a question about what they like about what the advisor does and what they value, you're going to find the gap. I mean, th this is what's fascinating about this when you work with advisors if, is, and I know it's speaking specifically with Julie, Julie knows a lot about advisors surveying their clients, if they actually will do the survey work. And it, it doesn't even have to be a formal written survey. If they just add a question or two to their review process face-to-face -face with their top clients, they're going to hear these gaps. You know, one of my favorite questions uh, is at some point in the annual review, ask them for permission to ask about how we're servicing you. Do you mind if we ask you a few questions just to see how we're doing? And of course, your clients are going to say yes. And then have a question, something along the lines of, Mr. and Mrs. Client, if you were to describe the services we provide to you, to a close friend or family member, what would you tell them? And I, I've coached so many advisors through this and they are, they don't believe me when I tell them and I try to preempt it. <laughs> I tell them what the client's going to say and the client is not going to describe the services they provide. They're not. They're going to say they like and trust them. Yep. And there is the gap. So it's, it, am I right that you're talking about two different gaps here or are they part and parcel of the same thing? So you've described a value gap and, and, and you started off talking about all these various complexities and inputs that we're all faced with and, and there could be a, a knowledge or an understanding gap. Have I got that right? Yes, it is one and the same. So all of those uh, macro forces are basically homogenizing in a client investor's mind, uh, what an advisor is doing for them, uh, mm. other than some of the rudimentary things like sending statements, providing updates, meeting for a review, uh, checking in with them, et cetera. And the immersion piece of it is that we just get too caught up in what we believe to be the case without asking. Yes. Whatever, and this isn't just akin to our profession. You could say this no, about no. Uh, any professional service uh, line of work. If it's subject matter that you're 
diving into deeply on a regular basis, uh, that that proximity, another word for it is proximity bias, is going to really rule the day versus who your client is, who the general populace is in their knowledge base. So Maybe, uh, go ahead, Julie. I'm sorry. That's okay. We, Steve and I do this a lot, by the way. Um, <laughs> so maybe so we've got two different pieces going. I, I sense they're both really important to this equation. It's what the advisor is doing, but it, it also sounds like the the understanding what the investor is doing. And I know you've talked about investors having a general lack of awareness about their own needs. Can you talk about that and how that sort of plays into all of this? Well, you know what? Great opportunity to share a story that I share with uh, experienced advisors as well as uh, new advisors in our new advisor training program. It's a story of a client advisory board that I did for a top advisor team a couple of years back. And uh, this was the first time they were doing client advisory boards, uh, a client advisory board meeting. And they asked if I would come up as their coach and observe their initial meeting. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. So, uh, go up to the meeting. They had rented a very nice room, private room in a, in a restaurant. And I was just introduced as the Raymond James corporate guy. And, you know, was making nice with people during the cocktail and hors d'oeuvre session. And then we sat down and it was basically a horseshoe uh, shaped table. And there were 11 of their top clients uh, sitting around this table. And the three of us uh, were sitting in the front of the room. And the question and answer portion started. And at one point, one of the clients said something along the following lines. They said, and this was 2014, and they were reflecting on 2013 market performance. And they said, um, advisor and and junior advisor, we love the fact that you have performance on the statements that you send us. But last year, when we look at how we did in the diversified portfolio, and we understand diversification. But when we look at how your portfolio did at 13% versus the S&P 500 at 27%, you know, that that gap just seems too big. And so I sensed an opportunity. And as I say to financial advisors, maybe this is your cue not to invite me to your client advisory board meetings. (laughs) But I sense an opportunity and I raised my hand. And the client that was speaking said, sure, Raymond James, corporate guy, what's up? And I said, may I ask a question? I figured I should ask permission even further. And they said, of course. So here was the question, folks. What is the S&P 500? That was my question. 11 seven-figure net worth clients of this advisor's practice were in that room. Not one of those 11 people accurately answered that question. There's no story I can tell that better solidifies what we talked about in the beginning of this conversation. And I call that the third level of knowledge. I like to say there's three levels. People know what they know. They know what they don't know. And the third level is they don't know what they don't know. And because of those forces I mentioned early on in this call, my contention is while all three of those buckets, because of all this access to information, are growing, meaning I think people know more more about what they know today than they did before. And I think they know more that they don't know. But I think that third bucket, that amount of information people don't even know they don't know, is growing 
exponentially. The good news is, and this is really what I think is the essence of the highest level of connectivity and value-added advisors, the advisors that ask really great questions and, and, and not only you know, provide a lot of insight based on the questions they're asking to prospects and clients, but also create some vulnerability and some discomfort. When they can do that and do that really, really well, it starts to change this equation. It starts to, to close this gap. So, so I'd like to ask you a little more about that. But before I do, I'd like to go back just a little bit. And, and it, was, it was revealing because as soon as you, you know, as soon as that client in the advisory board said, we understand diversification and now let's compare you to the S&P 500. Of course, you, you instantly know that they don't know. And that's probably what prompted your question. Let, I wanted to ask you, is this, is this an advisor who does planning or just investment management? Both. This is, a, this is CFP yeah. with the comprehensive financial plan. And I, yeah. And I, I see that all the time, you know, and this is one of those things that I think advisors don't, don't understand, but it's also something that advisors do to themselves. Um, is that, you know, the real value comes from the advice. It doesn't, it, you know, the financial planning, it doesn't come from the investment management. You know, you can, you can get that from Betterment if you needed to. Um, but advisors end up talking so much about the investments that they, that they essentially persuade their clients to forget that all this value is coming out of the planning. Is that, do you see that too? Well, but it's even worse. Even if they, I agree with you, Stephen, even if they are spending that much time talking about the performance, the client in the markets, in the portfolios, the clients don't understand what they're talking about anyway, based on what I just described. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. The reason that, let, let's give our, uh, you know, we, we consider our advisors, our clients at Raymond James, and I know they're your clients as well. So let's give our advisor clients the benefit of the doubt here. That the reason that they that they talk to clients about the performance uh, to some degree is it's a little easier to keep score of, right? I mean, it's easier to measure and track and to make meaningful sense on whether or not you're making progress. The planning piece, unless and we have some advisors that have developed some really really intricate Excel type tools where they are monitoring and aggregating the planning pieces on an ongoing basis. And there's red, yellow, and green. And the clients that are um, closing all of the planning gaps are getting all greens. That allows you to keep score in the planning space. But the planning piece is much harder for advisors to, I think, keep meaningful progress checks on with the clients. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I, I think in addition to that, you know, there are a lot uh, with financial planning. You do a lot of the heavy lifting up front. So once you're done that that financial plan and everything's on track and everything's on course, and you know you've you've addressed other things over time, your beneficiaries are all straightened out and those kinds of things. You know, sometimes that conversation tends to taper off because there's just not any anything more you need to do. And so I think it's like you said, you know, you're not keeping score of it. They approach financial planning like a task to be done, and when it's done, then it's kind of done. And, and like you're saying, we need we need for a way to, to bring that back into the conversation. So you're always addressing some of the planning things so that they can remember that that's where a lot of that value comes from. And I think that example that you used of the uh, of having that kind of a scorecard is is brilliant. I, I, are there other kinds of things you've seen from advisors that that where they help the the, um, the planning stay in the conversation long term? Well, yes. Uh, what they do is they chunk these tools up into uh, they chunk them up by target market. They chunk them up by demographic. They chunk, uh, chunk them up by by uh, 
money in motion. And so anytime a client has uh, an application that fits in uh, one of those different uh, buckets, so to speak, they're able to bring a whole new lens into the conversation that the uh, client's going to get some some value from going through that step in the process, if that makes sense. And if I can just sort of pick up on where we started with the, a lack of awareness, in your example, it was about the S&P, kind of extended the conversation from there. But if we go back to to that general lack of awareness, what do you think it is important for clients to understand and how can advisors actually tease out what's important? I mean, I'm making an assumption that it's not important for them to understand every single detail. Agree. So great question. Um, And it gets back to, you know, I don't just talk about asking great questions. We teach asking great questions. So one of the things that we teach and that we, the most experienced advisors have so much ground to plow here um, is that because they're less likely to do what I'm about to describe where a newer advisor is more comfortable doing what I'm about to describe. We call them fuzzy words. So fuzzy words are words that can have multiple meanings. And when you start to dig into what is or, is or isn't a fuzzy word, almost every word's a fuzzy word, okay? So when, when a client or prospect says the word market, would we all agree that market means different things to different people? Sure, yeah. Okay, so so... When somebody says, you know, what do you think about the market? What percentage of advisors just start doing a verbal dump in response to that question versus what percentage say, you know, Julie, Stephen, in consideration of your question, a lot of people have a different context on what, what market they're referring to. Give me more color when you say market on what market you're speaking of. Now, that's a little bit of a simplistic example that you probably wouldn't do with a, a, a somebody you perceive as sophisticated. But if somebody said the word risk, so let's ch- change it mm-hmm. to a different fuzzy word. Risk is one where you're in the locker room after a round of golf, you're, you're, you're talking to somebody that you might not have talked to before, and they say the word risk. That's a perfect time to pounce on a fuzzy word. But what does the typical advisor do, and more often than not, the experienced advisor, they start to respond without having the information that I think is critical to have the best response. And so, S&P, by the way, S&P 500 was the fuzzy word, back to my example of the client advisory board event. And, and Stephen, you really nailed it. I mean, by their very description, they did not understand diversification. Okay. They didn't. Exactly. I knew that. Here's the other thing, and advisors all, all know this, but I'm going to remind them, most wealth in our country is still first-generation wealth. Those who have built wealth generally have a reasonable size, I'm being nice here, reasonable size ego that accompanies that affluence. And they don't like being talked to, talked down to, God forbid, or told what to do. So we don't if we're really good, we don't tell people this stuff. We ask them questions and try and create insight. Insight is becoming used. My favorite word used to be pain. You know, we give no pain, no change. What I found is insight 
is what people are looking for. Insight is really what gets people's attention. Insight is the invitation to awareness and insight and awareness are the segue to pain. It's kind of like the foundation or the groundwork that's necessary to reach the point in the conversation where they really want, they really are sensing there's some possible gaps in their individual situation. But more than that, because there's perceived value to insight, there's more likelihood that they want to actually continue the conversation. It's, I, I think this is, this is great insight generally in all of our relationships, frankly, because I think we, we make so many assumptions, right, when we're, we're talking to people. But I'd love to pick up on this idea of questioning. I think it's, it's so important. Can you give us any other examples of, of how you talk to advisors about the kinds of questions that might draw out what's important? Um, absolutely. Uh, it, it's, there's just a couple of things that we teach we keep it very simple. Um, so I'll, I'll just share a couple of those with you as examples. Uh, what and how, we like to say, are two of the most powerful words in the English language. So you really can't ask a what or how question and not get a decent amount of feedback from a what and how question. Uh, we teach them to try not to use why. Why is typically used with children and subordinates and has a uh, a, a kind of added implication that you you either did something you shouldn't or you didn't do something that you should have. So we try to teach them not to ask why. And then my other favorite is what we call a spectrum question. And there's so many great opportunities to create a spectrum within a conversation. And a spectrum is just something time bound from beginning to end. And when you frame a question that way, it, it requires the person you're talking to to hearken back to their memory archive, so to speak, and put a lot of thought into the time frame you've laid out in order to answer the question. So let me give you a good example because I love, you know, I have, we have a new advisor uh, class in right now, so I'm kind of in my new advisor mode. But these are, these are questions that experienced advisors can absolutely use too. So when somebody tells you they're already working with an advisor, you know, I throw it out there. I can do it right now and pause uh, hypothetically and say, what would you say? But you, hopefully you have a response to that. And so once you're starting to have some dialogue around that, a great spectrum question would be, you know, Julie, you mentioned that you have an advisor and you've been working with them for the past 15 years. Can you give me an idea from the very beginning? How did you meet the person? Were you referred to the person? Do you remember who referred you? Can you tell me how the process started? How many meetings there were? Did you do a plan? All the way up to you know, how it's gone over those last 15 years, up until the last couple of times you've met and the things you've talked about. Give me an idea over that 15-year period of time some of how that's played out, okay? Now think about the, the depth of content you're gonna get from their response to that question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great question. And so people say, yeah, people say, well, I, 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 I can't have really good deep conversations with somebody. Well, you're just not asking the right questions. You're, you're not, and the other thing we teach, so uh, 
all the stuff I put in front of the what and how there we call framing and buffering. So a lot of what we uh, dive deeper on with, with advisors is helping them do the proper framing and buffering to their what and how questions. So if you just do those things, if you really practice what and how, and Julie, you made such a great comment earlier, uh, and I'm blessed. I have one of these one of these spouses that I practice this stuff. My wife is so sweet and different than me that she doesn't even know I'm practicing on her most of the time. <laughs> you can this stuff applies in your personal life. Okay, when when my kids are going off the rails, I'll 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 sit them down. I'll look them in the eyes and I'll say, you know, what pain inside you gives rise to your behavior? Try that one sometime. <laughs> yeah, right. That's that's bordering on Zen right there. Yeah, that's yes, exactly. Try, try that. Yeah, it comes from Eckhart Tolle. Nice catch. Um, <laughs> try, try that. Try that with an adult sometime. Try it with one of your yeah. colleagues at work when they're acting crazy. So th- this stuff applies. What and how in your personal life um, has a, a, a ton of of benefit in the in the uh, context of better understanding, empathizing, and connecting with other people. Well, and this and this gets back, Dave, to something that you had mentioned before that I wanted to probe a little bit more. You talked a little bit about being vulnerable with clients, and it's something that we've heard brought up before. And I'd, I'd love to get more of your perspective on what you mean by being vulnerable with, with clients and prospects and, and, and how that plays out. Well, my experience there is that is very case-dependent, and the level of knowledge and understanding you have in each individual relationship is going to drive the the direction you're going to go there. Um, So if I'm sounding like it's a hard question to answer, it is because you almost need a specific scenario um, to make it, uh, to make discussing it and, and, uh, you know, digging deeper into it more meaningful. Well, so probably a bad answer, but what are your thoughts on that? Am I making sense? In terms of the specifics, yeah, I can see. I mean, how, I mean, if I were to try to play that back, I guess how you show up as being open and vulnerable, just it, there's context to that. There isn't a way to do that. Um, maybe there are some commonalities around uh, the kind of information you're willing to share, uh, how open you are about your own life, the stories that you tell. Um, but yeah, I can see exactly what you mean. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not like you say, hi, this is, this is my friend Dave. And I tell you about, you know, a a childhood experience or something, (laughs) you know, we don't. (laughs) But I think being comfortable. So this is an interesting way of putting it. Um, and this is something I see millennials struggle with, um, more than, and some of that, and I want to be careful because, you know, those millennials that are out there listening, don't be offended by my talk around your demographic because I'm, I'm training many of you and I'm close to so many of you. Uh, but some of it may be because you're younger. I was less inclined to have challenging conversations when I was 27 years old than I am now that I'm 53. So some of it may be that you're young, but, but the language I use is, you have to get comfortable making other people uncomfortable. And millennials aren't necessarily as wired to have difficult conversations as, especially in the context of financial challenges, uh, that I think they need to be at times. And maybe maybe the salesy type advisor of any age isn't. Uh, they only mm-hmm. want to talk about 
uh, you know, the good stuff rather than, you know, digging it a little deeper. Well, there, there's a risk too that that if you, um, you know, it, it's you have to be very careful. I think when um, if, if you're if you talk about helping making clients uncomfortable, which I think is really important. <clears throat> You can misinterpret that and and do it in a way that that you know that makes you sound like the smart guy, but that's not what you mean. And 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 I think, um, yeah, I think that's something that 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 uh, you know advisors need to be sensitive to and 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 thoughtful around. How how do you train advisors to 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 do that kind of thing where they don't just <clears throat> you know denigrate their you know a client's lack of knowledge so that they can prove how much they know? Exactly. No, these are great points and and. Because you can come off as being coy, you can come off as being a wise guy. So I, the only way I can, there's no shortcut here. This is this is all about practice, uh, and this is about even within a conversation asking for feedback along the way. You know, is this making sense, Julie? Do you, do you understand where I'm coming from? Uh, you, you have to really engage the person, and you have to monitor on an ongoing basis to make sure you're staying engaged and staying connected. It's so funny because just the words, now that I'm, I'm sort of honing in on words uh, from our conversation, and there's a huge difference between probably saying, does this make sense? And saying, am I making sense? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, yes. so everything become, is, is open for interpretation. And it's interesting how the smallest change can change the, the, the entire tenor of the conversation. It's it's such a, a valid observation. And, you know, this is the tough thing about training today. Today, a lot of us grew up with scripts and, and we we saw the benefit of scripts. Uh, for, for lack of anything else, I like scripts because it allowed me to measure. If, if, if I tweak something and it got better or worse, I, at least I knew because mm-hmm. I had, had changed it and stuck to what I changed and compared it to what I was doing before. We want to be natural in our communications. We want to be comfortable in our communications, but there are some things that the right use of the right words and the nuance associated with that, it just can't be underestimated. I, I do mm-hmm. like people to put, uh, there are certain parts of certain conversations uh critical conversations that I, I really want advisors to to pay close attention to the words they're using. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and like you said, Dave, you know, I think, I think one of the challenges is that these are skills and you need to practice them, you know, that you can't just, I think one of the things that advisors are, like a lot of people are looking for is just, okay, just tell me what to do and I'll go do it. Um, and and they and they they need to be developed. But you know, when when they talk about when advisors think about skill building, a lot of times they they want to go to the you know what's what's the seminar that's coming up on on the Roth, you know, and or what's the you know what's the latest in in modern portfolio theory. But but they're not as interested, frankly, in doing the hard work of learning how to communicate better and in a more nuanced way. Is that do you observe that with the people you train? Well, yes, and a funny segue to uh, a, a written conversation, written dialogue Julie and I had about a year ago. Julie's going to know what I'm talking about here in a second. We <laughs> talked about the history of how advisors have been trained. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Advisors have been trained by going to conferences and listening to 50-minute infomercials that they get CE on. Yeah. But that isn't how people learn. Adults learn from actual practice and doing. Now, 
don't worry, advisors. I know I hear what you're saying out there. I know you don't like role playing. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody likes role playing, but it is how you learn. You have to practice. So we as the is the educators have to take some of this on the chin. It's partly our fault uh, as an industry. This is how we've uh, our, our advisors have become conditioned to going to an event and being presented to, but they have to now, they've got to up their game and they've got to be willing to go to an event, maybe even do pre-work before an event, do actual hands-on roll up the sleeves practicing while they're at the event, and then they have to commit to more practice after they leave if they really want to have a realistic chance of changing behaviors moving forward. That's just a fact. And it was, and it's so interesting because the reality is that that is what, of course, the research showed, right? And the research that that Dave and I were talking about was about what caused transformation oh, sure. in the business, and it was all of those things. Having said that, so many events, and let's face it, and I, I'd be guilty of this as well, is 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 we're trying to get good ratings. Right. <laughs> and good ratings aren't always transformation. So I think you're right. We, we all need to come together and figure out what's what's right and best here. Um, now, I'm just I, if you don't mind, I just wanted to jump in with a, a question because I know we're, we're sort of a little bit over our time. And I, I, I'm hoping you'll give us a, a little more of your time here. But I want I was wondering about how this ties back to our over arching theme of the podcast, which of course is about becoming referable. So we've talked about connection and, and conversation and words. So Dave, how, how do you think that plays into either driving referrals or simply becoming referable? It's very simply, it all comes together. It's all about empathy. The most desired characteristic of an advisor and really of a of an advice providing service professional is empathy. And there's no greater way to convey empathy than to ask good questions and show that you care. So your referability is going to come from, think about, think about the act of a referral. Think about, especially a high quality. And, you know, Julie, you have done as much research on this as anyone. The, the, the higher, highly engaged client that's providing this referral, a big reason they're comfortable providing it. And generally, who are they providing it to? It's a close friend or family member. So they they will only put you as a professional in front of that close friend or family member if they have a high degree of comfort in you, trust in you, believe that you have a high degree of empathy as a human being. And salespeople are never going to earn, for, for salespeople to even to expect to earn that is somewhat offensive. You can see my tone of voice start to change there. <laughs> it's, it's almost borderline disturbing. A salesperson shouldn't be asking for referrals or getting referrals because nobody likes salespeople. Professionals that care and connect and ask should be getting referrals. But I, 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 I'd want to kind of wrap up by saying, I want you as a professional in our trade to turn the lens back on yourself and start to, with your client's permission, in a best case scenario, record some of your meetings and really put the filter on about how much you're talking and asking versus how much you're telling and selling. And if you do that, and if you're honest about it, I think it it will be enlightening. 
I think it will uh, create the insight and awareness and, and the discomfort in what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I think you will be open to start to change your behaviors because if you can get to the point where you really are asking questions, listening for fuzzy words and continue to drill down and not, here's the key, not provide a solution one or two questions in. Okay. That's what salespeople do. Oh, I've got an opportunity. Let's pounce. No, you know, I like the old pull the gun out of the holster. No, let's <laughs> get away from that. Let's ask three or four or five or six or eight more questions. Ask the questions to the point where they say, you know, here's what I tell. This is a great way to, 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 to wrap the whole questioning piece up. You know, one of the things advisors say when they have conversations and when they're out doing social prospecting is they want to continue the conversation. And here's, there's only one of three outcomes. You have a conversation and it goes nowhere. You have a conversation and you sense as the advisor slash salesperson that it's going somewhere and you ask the person you talk to to keep the conversation going at a later date. Here's the third level and it's the highest level. And this is when you're at your very best. And you, those of you listening, you, you can hearken back right now to scenarios. Think of some of your best clients and think, think of how this happened. Some of them might have even happened recently with new relationships where you were asking enough questions. You were hitting on enough areas of concern, creating enough insight that the, the person you were talking to said, Steve and Julie, how can we continue this conversation? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. Can I come by your office sometime and meet with you? Folks, that's where if, if you start that way and you continue your relationships that way, referability will be, you'll have to shut down your practice <laughs> to everything but quality referrals from your best clients. I, I just love that as a wrap up because I, it's, it's so true. And just even as you're speaking, I, I'm thinking about the fact that we always talk about creating content that is shareable and, and, and so on. But the reality is when I'm out to dinner with my friends, I would share great questions, right? I, I share great conversations. I, I think that's it, it. And so I can see that happening just as, as much uh, from this. So the, those are wonderful insights. But uh, let me, uh, you know, we could continue all day, frankly. This is fascinating. Uh, it's been such a... And in fact, we'll probably, we'll probably stop the recording and keep just, continuing this yes, yes. Can we continue this conversation? Oh, sorry. Yeah, look at that. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it. Likewise. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Dave. Hey, folks. Steve again. Thanks for joining us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. So until next time, so long.